Good morning, church family. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at the first 20 verses or so, and we're going to dive in uh, as we talk about this little word that's so peculiar, faith. We're going to talk about this idea of faith. We say things around this word faith of how is your faith or where is your faith as though somebody looking, you know, in their pockets for something like that. Where is your faith? Do you have faith? We're going to look at what this means. We're going to look at it through the uh, examples of Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at three different ways of, of this faith. We're going to look at an example of no faith. We're going to look at an example of little faith. And then we're going to look at what saving faith really is. Fortunately for us, in in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we are told exactly what faith is. We're actually told what faith is. Now, there's sometimes we're like, well, I don't really know what that is or what that means. But fortunately for us, we have it laid out for us and a simple understanding of what faith is. So let me read this to you. You can follow along on the screens here behind me. You keep your finger in Matthew chapter 16 and we'll be there in a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Within this idea of faith, there are two components. When we talk about, uh, we talk about faith, there is an intellectual agreement and there's trust. Let me explain. Most of you will know what this is. It's a chair. If you do not know, I really can't do much for you today. This is a chair. Intellectually, we could agree that this is a chair. It looks structurally sound. I've read the manual. We have put it together according to the guidelines with this chair. Yes, it, it kind of fits together in different ways. And, and you look at it and you say, okay, so I can, I'm, I'm just kind of looking at it. It looks sturdy. It looks sound. It looks comfortable, actually. I think I should be sitting here this whole time. And, and I'm looking at this, and I think intellectually, I can agree that this would be okay. Similarly, the later verses that, uh, that Scotty read for us about having faith and believing creation, this idea that you would believe that God really did create something out of nothing. As I've said before, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, you can believe the rest of the Bible pretty easy. For, him, for you to believe in an all-knowing, all, a sovereign, all-powerful God created something out of nothing, certainly the rest is easy. But intellectually, we would say, okay, I agree with that. I agree with that. This chair, I would agree that this seems like a sound chair overall. And I would say, okay, well, believing in it is just not enough. Well, how so? Can I, can I still be uh, okay with this chair if I believe that it's a comfortable chair? I believe it's a sound chair. Well, I don't know that I believe that you have the faith that you say you do. Because intellectually, you're saying all the right things. Intellectually, you agree, but you have to have trust. You have to actually take what you intellectually agree with and rely on it. That's where trust comes in. So if I intellectually agree with this chair and I say, okay, it looks like a fine chair. The legs seem pretty solid. How do I trust the chair? What do I do? You guys are 
on it today. Man, 11 a.m., people are ready to go. Sit in it. Okay, let's give it a shot. I mean, I like it. I have placed my belief, my intellectual agreement. Um, okay, got that. Now I need to rely on the truth. And I'm all in. How many times do we get wrapped up in theological conversations, let's say? This really is enjoyable sitting up here in this chair. How many times do we get wrapped up in stuff, but we're not ready to rely on it? It's like being a, a Christian spy. I hang out with people all the time. None of them know I'm a Christian, and that's the point, so I can get into their world. <laughs> Bad idea. Terrible idea. Dumb idea. Because then nobody knows anything about your faith, and if you're a follower of Christ, you're supposed to be light versus darkness. And if you're not relying on the fact that you believe in this Jesus, then it's not saving faith. Did you know that the demons, we're told in Scripture, believe? They know who Jesus is. They know who God is. You can see it through there. Even when they confronted Jesus and said, whoa, you know, son of God, son of man, however they worded it, um, are you here to torture us before our time? What? Yeah, they're well aware of who he is. They're well aware of the fact that God is going to put them through judgment, and they know there's going to be a day of the Lord, and they're freaking out about it. They believe it, but they don't rely on it. So the question then is to see, God, where, are we, where am I at right now? Do I have no faith? This isn't a shaming thing. It's a revealing thing. Just we're just gonna call it for what it is. Let's just live in truth. Do I have no faith? Do I not even believe in anything of God? It's possible. The fact that you're even here entertaining the idea that you would sit here for anywhere from 35 to 55 minutes. I'm just kidding. I usually don't go that long. Would say that you have at least a little. But you believing that God exists. Alone is not saving faith. Do you rely on that? Are you willing to go to bat for that? Well, let's look at some of Matthew chapter 16 and see how some people within this narrative uh, handles these three differences. So let's start with this idea of no faith. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 1. One day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Now, if you are, are, are familiar with the scriptures and you see the names Pharisees and Sadducees and you see those two together, that alone is peculiar, weird, never happens. Here's a very weird situation where you have two groups that are completely opposite of one another somehow have agreed to come together for a common goal. What is that? Trick Jesus. Probably to trick Jesus. Not to investigate, oh, could this really be the one? 
We have seen time and time and time again, even leading up to this point, that the reason the Pharisees and other religious leaders would show up is to be able to accuse him because they hate Jesus. They don't want Jesus around. He's, Jesus is messing with their way of life. So let's look at these two groups. We've, we've discussed them before, but let's do a little review. With the Pharisees, we're looking at highly intensified conservative individuals, very legalistic. They have an intense focus on the law of Moses, law of God, and on the oral law. They would say, remember back in the 90s, we would use those braces to say, what would Jesus do? Remember that? Um, They would say, what would Moses do? They would want to know, like, what would Moses do in this situation? They would search the scriptures, and they would, what would Moses do? What would Moses do? They were all about, uh, they were all about the, the written law, no doubt. And then they had this oral law that they had brought into it as well. And self-righteousness and legalism became their God. Initially, the Pharisees and Sadducees started off with, with really great uh, a stance, a foundation. It was good. Like the idea, like, okay, we're going to separate ourselves uh, from, from the rest of the world, the Pharisees would say, and, and we're just going to be separatists. We're not going to look like them or do anything like them. But they took it to such a degree that they prided themselves on being completely away from them. And then it's, look at me, I'm self-righteous. So these are the conservatives in the group. The Sadducees, opposite, would then be the liberals in their theology. They did not believe in the, or the following the oral law. They were political activists. They would do whatever it took to hang out with politicians to further whatever cause they were looking into. While the Pharisees believed in angels and spirits and demons and bodily resurrections, the Sadducees did not believe in those things. So you have two opposing groups... They were never together until now. Isn't it interesting how Jesus brings people together? <laughs> and their goal was to focus on, we got to get, we, we, we got to, what's going on here? He's messing with our way of life. We like our way of life and we want to stay with this. So they're asking questions. And the worst thing they could ask, hey, show us a sign of your authority. And Jesus replies, you know, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. We've heard this before. Um, red, red sun in the morning, sailor take warning. You've heard this probably before. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky. Jesus is letting them, listen, you guys can, this is before the, the Doppler radar. You guys can look up and you can see the sky and interpret how things are going or what's coming your way. But you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Now, this isn't the times in the sense of, you know, what time of day it is. This is understanding, you know, the the sign of the times. Like, what's going on within the culture? What's going on? Religical, religious. Religious implications, there it goes. And we're trying to understand what's really happening of all the people to be able to know the signs of the times. It should have been these religious leaders. And Jesus says, you can interpret the weather and do these things, but you don't even have a clue what the signs of the times are. Only an evil adulterous, meaning spiritual infidelity. 
you should be following the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you're not. You're following your own gods, your own oral traditions. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. Yes, he's referring to them. He's calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees evil and adulterous. This is not a casual conversation. This is very confrontational. But only, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, that cleared it up. Okay, the prophet Jonah. What do you mean by that? Well, if you remember our study, when we went through Matthew chapter 12, Jesus already explained this once. Same, similar conversation. Maybe there was different people or not. But if you look at Matthew chapter 12, in verses 39 through 40, a very, very similar, almost identical conversation is happening here, where religious leaders showed up, and they're asking, they're asking for a sign. Prove it. Isn't that what we want? Prove it. Prove it to me. And Jesus says in verse 39 of Matthew 12, just as a review of what we've gone through before, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the true, but only a sign that I will give you is a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly, and here's the explanation of what this means. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He lays it out there. Jonah, there's your sign. Of course, you're staring at Jesus, a sign. You're looking at a sign, but you're missing that. So, okay, you want something else? Jonah. And then he turns and he walks away. This was another moment, I'm sure. Because whenever you call a religious leader in their day, especially prideful individual, hypocrite, that's, that's that's a harsh one. Whenever you call them evil or adulterous, that doesn't, that doesn't really set well with the religious community of the day. And these were like the leaders, right? These were the ones that prayed in public and they had all the awesome dress and stuff. And they're like, look at me, I'm so holy. And Jesus was a bit confrontational and laid it out. He was never wrong. He said the truth. The truth to somebody that's a hypocrite they're going to get mad. They're going to get mad because they don't want to be called out. The sign of Jonah. These guys, they didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah. Hey, give us a, give us a sign that this that you're with your authority. So they didn't even get to get to a place where they relied on the truth. They weren't buying it. No faith. Is that you? The second one is little faith. Later, after they crossed the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered that they had forgotten to bring any bread. Isn't it interesting how everything just seems to go back to food? I mean, I probably would be like, hey, we're going on a road trip. Any snacks? Right? You got any snacks in the car? Hey, we didn't have any bread. And Jesus is talking here. They 
about, about what's going on, just had this moment. I would imagine that Jesus at this point in his humanity, and of course in his divinity, because God gets mad, no doubt, Jesus is a bit perturbed. And he's saying, so they're arguing, they're talking about the bread. Jesus says, watch out, Jesus warns. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we talked about this at some point we went through. You would know that the yeast, when it, when it puts into dough, it doesn't take much, but a little bit can go a long way. It permeates. It, it actually uh, changes the dough and begins to make it rise. And so you have this yeast that corrupts what is there, and it begins to change it. And Jesus said, you know, they would know what this means, doing bread all the time, and the yeast, no yeast, and says, listen, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. So now Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples are going, now he's mad at us because we didn't bring bread. What? I wonder sometimes if there was a moment, maybe once or more, I just wonder if Jesus ever had a moment where he just kind of looked at his disciples and went. Parents, you can relate to this, right? We're like just kind of teachers. Anybody that works with somebody that you're trying to explain something to and you're like, you have been with me all this time and you're still not getting it. And so they're arguing with each other. They begin to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying. Here, Jesus is trying to discuss something spiritual, and they're worried about something physical. So typical of us to make it all about the physical, when in reality, we are spiritual beings in a physical body. Not a physical body that just so happened to have a spirit. And so Jesus is regularly helping us try to understand, listen, there's a spiritual element to this. I'm talking about this. And they're worried about the, the literal bread that they forgot to bring. So he's looking at them, possibly a little moment of a sigh. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But based on the wording, he says, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? And he begins to lay out a reminder of what they have experienced so far with regards to bread. Now, last week, we talked about the feeding of the 4,000. And I said, sometimes uh, people will misunderstand this text. They think that maybe it's just a play on words or it's just a mess up of the numbers. That the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 are actually the same thing. Here's where you can see where Scripture supports and interprets Scripture. Because Jesus makes it very clear that those two events are different events. So he says, why are you arguing about not having any bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember that the 5,000 I fed with only five loaves and the baskets left over? Yeah. Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftover you picked up? Uh-huh. Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread 
So I'll say it again. So now that he's laying it out there, explained it again. Listen to what I'm saying. Beware of the yeast, the false doctrinal teaching. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then at that, they understood that he was speaking about the yeast and bread. They were, he wasn't speaking about the yeast and bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Great. We got it. Don't think for a minute, though, that false teaching was isolated to the day of Jesus. They were lying about Jesus right after the resurrection and he ascended. They were lying about him then, lied about the resurrection. It has not stopped. It looks very similar. We don't have the Pharisees and the Sadducees of a group of people that are like, okay, so yeah, these guys right here, these ones are the troublemakers. Oftentimes, and even more so, they look like really anyone else. But the teaching is wrong. Well, how do I know if the teaching is right or if the teaching is wrong? You need to read your Bible. You need to study this so that you can go and you can look into it. And when you hear a passage, if you hear a message here today, anything from this platform, go with a sense of, let me check out, let me check that out. Not because everything has to be a level of suspicion, but you should have a healthy level of suspicion that says, huh, I'm going to go read. Maybe you don't even distrust or doubt people that you hear from. But look into it. Somebody takes you to a verse in Deuteronomy and throws something out there and goes, I wonder, just just ask a question. I wonder if that was the context. Very simple. I wonder if that was the context. Because people can take just enough. The enemy, the devil does this. When he was tempting Jesus, he used scripture. What an arrogant creature. To try to use scripture against Jesus, God in flesh. (laughs) Right? And he lays out scripture and he gives these half-truths. All too often, we're fed half-truths and we say, well, but you know what? They're such a nice person. They're very charismatic. They're very fun. They've been around the world. They wrote books. And so they got to be right. That was the Pharisees. They were leading the charge. And Jesus called them hypocrites, den of vipers, which was really bad. Adulterous, evil generation. Whenever scripture talks about false teaching, it never handles it lightly. Never. Never will you go through scripture and see, well, they were wrong in their teaching, but let's just kind of cut them a break and just let them do them. And then we'll just kind of back off over here. Never does it handle it with a light hand. It always handles it with a heavy hand. Always handles it with a sense of like, no, we're not going to put up with that. We're not going to listen to that. That teaching is wrong. And perhaps maybe even having a conversation with that teacher to be able to say, hey, I, I think you might have been off on this. Help me understand. 
And if they're clearly off, then a simple moment, and I know this is going to be hard. I know this is hard, but a simple moment of, that's not what the text says. And I think it would be important for you to repent. Leading pastors, even today, that are leading in such a direction, are, are, are top New York Times bestselling authors. I don't know all of them personally, probably none of them, but I know their teaching. And the teaching, God's word did not change. So why did the standards change? And so take in what you're being, what you're learning and you're hearing and test it. Test it. Every single time, make sure that you test it. So they go on. Just be careful what you watch and what you listen to. YouTube doesn't sanction it as holy. Television doesn't always sanction it as holy just because it's there. Be mindful. Talk to us. Talk to me, Pastor Craig, and we'll sit down with you and we'll just talk through some elements to be careful of. So no faith. Little faith. Is that you? Or do you know this saving faith? What is this saving faith all about? In verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, also you could refer to it even as sin city of the day, uh, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? Now, when I say sin city, I'm uh, serious. This uh, area, this region was not a holy region. It would have been so easy for Jesus just to go to the synagogue in Capernaum, where he was headquartered at. He could have even taken a journey, which would not still have been as long as this journey, to even go to the temple. But he chose to go to Caesarea Philippi with the backdrop of modern cultural thought. And so he's look, they're, they're surrounded by pagan temples, no less than about 14 where other, where people have set up false gods to worship these gods. One of which would be Baal, uh, would have been uh, the god Pan, P-A-N. Pan was the, is the mythological creature where the, the top half is uh, a man and the bottom half is a goat. And he plays the flute, where we get the Pan flute from. Interestingly enough, this, this mythological creature, when Disney came out with Peter Pan, was modeled after this, this Greek god. With regards to Pan and the other surrounding pagan temples, of all places, Jesus, why, why, would you, why couldn't we go to some safe place? Why couldn't we just talk in the boat? You know, why, why couldn't we just, you know, let's walk on the water again. That was neat. Uh, let's go do something. Why, why here? Why in such a location that doesn't seem to match up? Jesus, based on the text, 
he just he's surrounding them with this culture of sin. And he asks a question, a very general question. Give me, give me kind of an answer. I want to see if you have any thoughts on this. Not because Jesus cared about what people thought of him, but because he wanted to start teasing out something. Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied in a very uh, pagan, probably hostile environment, sitting around, sitting somewhere. Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. What a mod podge of understanding here. Clearly, culture doesn't really have a clue. Just hearsay. Well, I heard. Well, I think. Well, I feel. That's what's going on here. So why John the Baptist? Well, if you remember, John the Baptist, uh, there was uh, Herod Antipas was concerned about Jesus being John the Baptist resurrected because he took the head of John the Baptist and he was kind of concerned, like, he's coming back. He's coming back. John the Baptist was also known for his zeal, his boldness. And who doesn't love a bold Messiah? Right? Who doesn't love a, a bold teacher to be like, that's it. That's where to get in their face. Come on, tell them what they did wrong. Everybody wants the John the Baptist. Most people maybe want the John the Baptist guy to be on the scene. Then there was Elijah. Elijah was known for his power and his miracles. He was known for, in Malachi chapter 4, at the very end of the Old Testament, he was known for being a part of this. This thought here, look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And they're saying, oh, maybe that's him. Elijah, maybe that's him. Could be. I mean, who doesn't want a powerful and miracle working and just all that attractive stuff happening around him? It's got to be him. And some thought Jeremiah. Where does Jeremiah fit into all this? Jeremiah had a nickname, the weeping prophet. We, read, we, we go through the book of Jeremiah, and after that, we get to the book of Lamentations and the book of you know, Lamenting and the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah. What are we, why would we put the weeping prophet? Fascinating that Jer- Jeremiah weeps over the same land that we will learn that Jesus weeps over. Jeremiah was very compassionate. Jesus is very compassionate. Who doesn't want a compassionate Messiah or some other prophet? At this point, they're all gone. All these are gone. They're trying to make sense of what they see instead of just seeing Jesus for who he was, who he said he was. Try to make sense of it in my head. Or you just trust it. You believe intellectually that this is for real. And then you lean on it. You trust it. Saving faith. But then he asked, so if that was a softball toss, This one is a heater because you're not going to hit it unless you hit it, right? Like you're not, unless you know, as you know, okay, fair enough. That's what everybody thinks, huh? Not because he was surprised. Well, who do you say that I am? 
Ooh, buddy. I don't want to get into that. I just want to, I just want to come to this building with church people and have a social interaction. I, I'm not trying to like actually rely on this truth. I just was cool with hanging out with you and doing the traveling thing. We've had fun. Why are you messing it up with a question like that? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, my friend, my passionate, excitable, uh, wonderful, emotional Peter friend, he jumps in there and he goes, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I got to believe, knowing Peter from the text, he was probably pretty excited about the fact that he got the, I think I got it right, guys. Right? Check the answer key. You're the Messiah. And Jesus replies, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. And here's why. Jesus does a great job of reminding us of our place. I want to elevate myself a little bit. He's so faithful to remind me, nope, that's not where you are. You're here. You are blessed because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. You did not come up with this on your own. You have what you have by the grace of God. Oh. Every once in a while, we just need to have those moments. Oh. Be reminded of our place. But he doesn't stop there. You know how Pastor Craig was teaching us at one point in time during um, Spiritual Cooking 101 that the English language can be lazy. Here's an example of how the English language can be kind of lazy in verse 18. I'm going to read through it, and then I'm going to explain it some more. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now we look at that and we go, oh, rock, rock, same word. I will build my church upon this rock, Peter. That makes sense. The Roman Catholic Church has even declared, hey, we're with Peter the first pope. Now let's look at this from the original language and see what it's saying and see if that holds water. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. Petros, little pebble. Feminine, little pebble. And upon this rock, Petra, masculine word, I will build my church. Those are opposing words. Then what are you building this church on? What do you think I'm building the church on? What you said, that you are the Messiah. This isn't Peter built, this is Messiah built. It's if the church of Jesus Christ was built on Peter, we'd all be in trouble. He wasn't even known as the leader of the early church. James was. And later, Paul rebuked uh, Peter. They didn't get the memo. Text wasn't working. Would they not have mentioned it somewhere in there that Peter was the guy? No, this is all built on the fact that the, he, uh, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ is. Jesus wasn't his last name. It wasn't Jesus, the Christ family. Jesus, son of Joseph. Christ is his title, the Messiah, the anointed one. Literally means to smear, right? To cover a multitude of sins. 
to take away the sins. Messiah, on this truth, this statement, is what I am building my church on. You might have this saving faith. But regardless of where you are right now, no faith, little faith, saving faith, let's just all come to the understanding that even up through Matthew 16 and a half, 33, uh, 32 some years that we have gone through so far, so most of Jesus' ministry, here's what we can glean from today, the big idea. Jesus has proven enough. Now, he's not done. We still have the, the crucifixion. We have the death. We have the resurrection, the ascension. There's plenty more to go. But even up to this point, Jesus has proven enough. So I want you just to, for, as a next step, just to spend some time thinking on this. To use a phrase that we started with, where is your faith? Is, is it really none, non-existent? Is, is it little? Or is it life-changing, saving faith? Simple prayer. Ask God to show you where you are. God, where am I at on this? Even if you think you know completely, you're not doubting by saying, Lord, I'm just, I just don't want to be led astray. I just don't want to think that I am, but I'm not. Lord, where is my faith? Even being willing to ask such a question should indicate something about where you are. Blessed are the humble. And ask God, where should I be? If this is where I'm at, where should I be? Ultimately, the goal, saving faith. Saving faith. Next week, we're going to finish Matthew 16. Please make sure that you read through that again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of your word. As we've learned through this idea of no faith, having no faith, having little faith, and yet having saving faith. Where are we? Where is each one of us individually? Where is your church? What needs to change? Anything? We just want to acknowledge that we don't have it all figured out. But we know you do. And so if there is anything that needs to be changed, adjusted, more or less of, please open our eyes to that truth, that our faith would truly be the reality of what we hope for, the evidence of things we cannot see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, will you stand, receive the blessing of the Lord as we head out here today? If you're new with us today, at the end of each time that we gather and worship together, I just take a moment, as in uh, the early days of Scripture, to just pray a prayer of blessing over everybody. And uh, our people like to kind of reach back after that. So that's all that happens at the end of our gathering time together. And then we charge out of here. So receive the blessing of the Lord. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Now say it with me. Go and be the church.